let's continue in that attitude of prayer. And if I could have my first slide. There's a prayer that Jesus prayed. John 17. Prayer of unity. And we sang songs like, Lord, reign in me. And you hear me talk about diverse unity all the time that in our current cultural situation, there's so many things that divide us and we really need to get our eyes on Christ and allow him to reign in our hearts and our minds because that's how we navigate any culture to be countercultural. Amen? And if this was a good enough prayer for Jesus to pray, I think it might be good enough for us to pray. <laughs> so let's continue and let's pray this together. Shall we pray? I pray not only for them, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, so that they may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And I have given them the glory that you gave me, so that they may be one, as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be brought to perfection as one, that the world may know that you sent me, that you love them even as you loved me. As I said last week, you can turn to your, in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. For those that are new, we just started a series on what is traditionally called the Sermon of the Mount. And Jesus is calling for a counterculture which means we are to be different. That's our character. That's what goes on in the inside of us. And we are to do different. That's our life choices. And this calling in our worship will not always be fun. But it will knock off the corners of our narcissism and our learned desire to be entertained. So one of the things I'm going to ask you to do collectively as a congregation is to pray that prayer of Jesus in John 17 every day till the end of the year. It's something that is a good discipline. It is something that we need God's spirit to direct us in. Because Jesus comes along and says this, you are blessed if you live accordingly. Remember I talked about how there's eight characteristics these are guidelines for us to be countercultural. And they're for everyone. They're just not for exclusive few. But along with those eight characteristics, he says, if you follow me in these things, there's eight promises. You are blessed. So live accordingly. And of course, there's an alternative. The alternative is if we forget the uniqueness of being God's people, we become like Israel. In Numbers 11, it says this, And the people, Israel, complained in hearing the Lord about their misfortunes. They didn't like how God was. They didn't like the fact that he freed them from slavery. They didn't like the fact that he was feeding them every single day. He didn't like, they didn't like the fact that he was taking them to a land that he promised, even though they rejected that promise and lived 40 years in the wilderness. And later on in that verse, it says, Now the rabble that was among them had strong cravings. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. Their desires, their heart were not set on the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. God did not reign in them like we sang this morning. 
And so alternative desires took over. So how do you want to live this morning? Do you want to live as blessed? Heard a story this past week. Someone was on a plane. And by the way, people watch us all the time, even though we don't think they do. And even though we think we're being positive, a lot of times we're really being negative. But they were sitting in their seat, and they watched this woman come back through, and she wasn't happy. And so she took her time putting her luggage up. And instead of sitting down and waiting for everybody else to come through, she decided to root through her luggage, take stuff in, take stuff out. Meanwhile, everyone was waiting for her to finish. And she obviously could sense the frustration. So she just kind of blurted out, I had to wait, so you have to wait too. And she finished. And my friend said when she turned to sit in her seat, on the back of her shirt said these words, Love the Lord your God with all your heart. We call these the Beatitudes. Blessed are. Eight characteristics, our responsibility, eight promises. That's the responsibility of God, the privileges. And last week we did an introduction but looked at the first, being poor in spirit. That we are destitute in anything that we could bring to God. And if we understand that and realize that, and in humility come and bow our knee to the King of kings and the Lord of lords, if we come and we worship in an attitude that there's only one person we worship, then the promise is the kingdom of heaven. We get this incredible inheritance, and that is both present and future. Now I want to remind you that these responsibilities and blessings are paradoxical. What that means is they appear to be upside down. What they promise and what they demand just doesn't coincide. I read an article this past week. There's a new book coming out. Uh, It's called Faith in the Spotlight. Subtitle was Thriving in Your Career While Staying True to Your Beliefs. It's written by a young woman by the name of Megan Alexander. She's a national news correspondent. She works for Inside Edition. The book is about her faith and mainly her position on abstinence about how she waited and saved herself for marriage. Now we live in a sex crazed culture. It's bombarded everywhere in our schools, our TVs, magazines, computer, phones. And what I find sad is our culture does little to encourage abstinence. We have a culture of no rules, no regard to consequence. It's a world of I want what I want whenever I want it. And this kind of selflessness, this abstinence makes little sense to our world. See, abstinence is a huge paradigm shift. And so along come people like Megan and Tim Tebow, and they're mocked. They say, what's wrong with you? But they say, Scripture says, blessed, if we listen to this rule, we will have a healthier relationship in marriage, and we will understand a deeper level what intimacy is. And so they believe that The rules that God has put in place are for our benefit. And that will increase their intimacy with God and each other. I heard a speaker a few months ago. Someone is a believer and wrestles with same-sex attraction. And I got to tell you, when people wrestle with same-sex attraction, there are reasons. 
And you hear me constantly say that we have to sit down and listen to people's stories. Well, her stories were really dark. In terms of sexual abuse from men, addiction to pornography and drugs. But here's what I remember her saying. She goes, you have to understand that all this stuff about what I wrestle with is not about sexuality. It's about intimacy. And she says, what the church has to figure out is how do we create intimacy in community for people like me? And I thought that was profound. See, our culture confuses sex and intimacy and only feeds the emptiness that it brings. And of course, Solomon said, there is nothing new under the sun. Today, we just kind of say what they said in the 70s. Anybody here around in the early 70s? Remember the phrase, you're okay, I'm okay, came a bestseller. And what they realized after 10 years of you're okay, I'm okay, is that it solved nothing. But here we are again with the same kind of vague generalities that will not produce the intimacy that God has desired for all his creation. So, understand this. Christ calls for a counterculture from us. But what he's saying is this. Every day is an opportunity to live out Christ. Every single day. You can be Christ in your context. Your context, your circumstances do not define you. I do. So, he brings this critical aspect to our attention as the second blessed. Blessed are those who cry. Matthew chapter 5 verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Again, sounds like a paradox, doesn't it? I mean, happy are those who cry. We're not talking about tears of joy here. We're talking about tears of repentance. If we understand that we are spiritually poor, if we acknowledge it, if we grieve over it, see, it's one thing to acknowledge it. It's another thing to grieve in the deepest parts of our souls. Now, in theological terms, for those that like theology, this is called confession and contrition. Here's what that means. First, we mourn because we understand what sin means to God. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. Have you ever seen anyone in tears confess that they'll claim they'll never do it again and they go and repeat the pattern a week later? That happens a lot, doesn't it? See, that is worldly grief. It produces death. And that is typical behavior when we don't allow Christ to reign in our lives. When we try to do it ourselves. When it's human effort that tries to achieve it. See, nothing changes. But see, the second part of this verse, what it means to God is we have to understand that the understanding of sin is God's redemptive nature. He leads us to salvation, and it says salvation without regret. We are forgiven. We are clean. We are whole. We don't have to hang on to the guilt and the shame of our past because we know whose we are. What we have to understand is God doesn't label attitudes and behaviors as sin to create this gotcha experience. 
God always identifies our sin and provides a way out. And if we are like God, when we confront sin, we always provide a way out. Our tendency of a way out, you know what it is? We just go up to people and say, you know, you're a sinner. Stop it. Just stop it. That isn't providing a way out. Providing a way out and God's understanding, you, you know his understanding about sin. He will do anything and everything, including sacrificing his own son to help us find a way out. He doesn't say, Pastor Greg, you know, that week you're pretty arrogant. Just stop it. No, he provides his Holy Spirit who comes alongside and we as a church are called to come alongside and help people live beyond their sin. And if and when they fall, what do we do? We pick them up and we keep walking with them. Now John 14 verse 26, but the helper, the comforter, that's what that word means to come alongside. The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. He's leaving, the Holy Spirit comes. He left, he brings in his church. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. We help, we comfort, we come alongside. Secondly, we mourn because we understand our sin. So we understand how God views sin, we understand our sin. It takes us back to being blessed are the poor in spirit. And humility is born out of our understanding of our sin. And this is critical in our faith development. The back to theology for people who like theology, this is what's called the sin of commission and the sin of omission. Here's the difference. Sins of commission are things that we do. Things like lying, stealing, murder, gossip, sexual immorality. Sins of omission are things that we do not do. Prayerlessness. Failure to give generously. Avoiding helping someone. Remember the story of the Good Samaritan? And how the people, because they were too busy, they had an agenda, they had a plan, and they were afraid. They avoided helping this person who was beaten and robbed. But along comes a good Samaritan. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am chief. This is Paul. And we look at Paul and we say, how could he say that I am chief? And again, he's not talking about past. He didn't say, I was the chief among sinners. I hear a lot of Christians sometimes explain this. Well, you know, Paul was involved with killing Christians and things like that. He remembers. No, he says, I am chief. See, Paul understood as he grew in faith, there are things at the beginning part of his faith he would never consider to be sin. And when he was more mature, he recognized his sin. So this understanding how God sees it and this understanding of our sin is, is a continual learning pattern. Think of it this way. For those that have accepted Christ, think about your conversion day. And what if God backed up an entire truck of all your sins and dumped it on you? How would you feel? 
a bit overwhelmed? So when we come alongside of others and as we build relationships, we allow the Holy Spirit to bring convictions both to us and to them. And sometimes he uses us to speak into their lives. Other times we don't. I think today the church is far more afraid to speak because we don't want to offend and we are more concerned about being liked than being Christ-like. And of course we're afraid because there's those judgmental Christians out there just lobbing the bombs. But you build the relationship. And there's other times he uses us in our silence. A group of ladies who were meeting for a Bible study came running to me one time and said, there's this lady coming to our church and she's been living common law for about 14 years with her boyfriend. And they got four kids. And she just accepted Christ. How do we sit down and tell her she shouldn't be living with her boyfriend? That was the first thing on their mind. I said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to this group pray for every single day. I don't want you to say a thing. And see where God leads her. About a month later, they came running back and they said, you'll never believe what happened. She came to us one day and said, you know, I realized that, that as a Christian, I shouldn't be living with my boyfriend, even though it's common law, we have kids, but, you know, we need to get married. And she goes, I need prayer because I'm going to go talk to him about this, and I want to live in separate rooms until we actually get married someday. Now think about what they would have done to her if they would have played the Holy Spirit week one. That's what I mean by leveraging our silence at times. Third aspect of this is we mourn because we understand the sins of others. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 21. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of impurity, of sexual immorality and sensuality that they have practiced. And what has been going on in the current Corinthian church is the fact that um, Sin was entering in, idolatry was entering in, and everybody's sitting there saying, you know, aren't we just such loving people? Look at how we just embrace anybody and we don't confront anybody on anything. But we see Paul mourning over that. Now, can I add that we shouldn't mourn over people, we should mourn over nations as well. Nehemiah, when he heard what was going on back in Jerusalem, he had never been there. He only heard stories about it. But when he heard what was going on in Jerusalem, here's what it says. He wept for days. It is my contention in America we do not weep enough over sin. I don't think we weep over the industry of pornography and what it's doing to our country. I don't think we weep over the industry of abortion and what it's doing to our country. I don't think we weep over the industry of slave trade and what it's doing to our country and our world. We don't weep enough over the industry of drugs. And by the way, have you noticed how someone always makes money out of the sins that destroy us? Have you noticed that? All four that I mentioned are multi-billion dollar businesses in our world. I think we don't weep enough over our sin because we've lost our sensitivity to sin. I think we've lost it in 
terms of how God views sin. I think we've lost it in terms of our sin, sin in our world. And those, those three are related. I hope you understand that. They're all interconnected. I want to read a story. It's out of scripture. I want you to listen to it. It's found in Luke 7. And just take in the words as I read because it illustrates these three points. Sin towards God in mourning, sin towards ourselves in mourning, and sin towards others in mourning. And look at the interaction of the situation where Jesus is sitting in a religious person's home and listen to what happens and then hear what he says. So I want you to listen to this story with fresh eyes in terms of blessed are they that are mourned for they shall be comforted. In Luke 7 verse 36, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at his table. So they're sitting there having a meal. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who invited him saw this, he said to himself, so he didn't even have the courage to say this out loud. If this man, Jesus, were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And of course, Jesus, knowing all things and hearing him, answered him saying this, Simon. And you can imagine Simon's kind of shocked because Jesus heard him murmuring. I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debts. And he said to them, you judge rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon. So understand, he's now looking at the woman in her eyes. And he's speaking to Simon. Talk about body language. The one I, well, then turning towards the woman, he said, Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she's anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sin? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Let me make three observations about this story. There's a lot we could say. The first is this. Did you notice it's possible to have Jesus in the house and still miss him? I think that should scare us. This Pharisee by the name of Simon, his religion shut Jesus out. 
They were more concerned in talking about people than being with people. They were more concerned about, wait a minute, who can forgive sins than the fact that he forgave her sins. What we call this is having a relationship with Jesus on our terms. So the first question we have to ask when we listen to the Sermon on the Mount is, who defines the relationship? Now, I know how we're going to answer that. We always say Jesus, but take it one step further. How are you living that? But I want to note, it's possible to have Jesus in the house and still miss him. Here's a second observation. When we understand our sin and mourn over it, tears of repentance, then and only then are we comforted. Comfort here you see is forgiveness. This is the promise. Why are we comforted? Because we are free from our sin. We're free from our sin that eats away at our souls. We're free from sin that destroys our vision of God. We're free from our sin that does violence to our relationships. We are free and there is no shame. Church sometimes can be a really great place of shaming. And that is not our calling. Our calling is to come alongside people, to help them up, and take them to Jesus. That brings me to my third observation about this short story. The more we understand the depth of our sin and allow Christ to forgive us our sin, the more loving we are. Now, I hope you understood in the story there was no difference between Simon the sinner and this woman the sinner. The only difference was his perspective. He thought he was better than her. And he had his list of sins that he didn't do. Therefore, he was qualified. And he was interrogating what rumor was that he was the Messiah. And I guess Jesus flunked because he didn't understand who this woman was. The reality was Simon didn't understand who this woman was. And Jesus freed her of her sin, freed her of her shame. And the tragic part of the story is Simon was still living in his slavery to sin. It just had religious overtones. I hope you realize the opposite is true. If we are not forgiven much, we become harsh and negative and judgmental because we lack true insight to our sin. We are ungrateful. And I believe one of the reasons... One of the key reasons why some Christians are so harsh and judgmental and critical is because they don't have a proper view of sin on all three levels. And that goes two ways. One is they have hidden sin. They refuse to deal with it because they refuse to deal with it, deny it, they excuse it, they blame it. They become really cranky, negative people because they're not free. The other is they're just so legalistic and and so caught up into what they don't do, they can't realize the beauty of God's grace and how that can just simply free them up. So this is the promise then. If we have a correct understanding about sin towards God and what he defines it as, if we have a correct understanding about our sin and how we sin before God, allow the spirit to bring conviction and confession and repentance. And if we mourn over the sin of our world, then we should. Then we shall be comforted. What this means is we should live like we are forgiven. 
And that is both present and future. I want to close with a portion of scripture from from Revelation chapter 21. I'm going to call the worship team up. We're going to sing a song that really focuses in on Christ as we close. But listen to what John has written at the end of his life through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth has passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Here's my prayer for us this morning. That we understand that God's dwelling place is with us. God with us. And that we will be his people. And that he will be our God. Let's pray. Gracious Father, a lot of this stuff goes over our head. We admit that. I guess what I'm really saying is it goes over our hearts because... We haven't accumulated and assimilated into our lives that this is just the air that we breathe. So help us, Lord. I pray for all of us this morning, and I pray for those that are carrying a sense of shame about their sin. They keep confessing and confessing and confessing. May they understand that they are forgiven. May they walk free from here this morning. And for all of us, Lord, that are blind to our own sin, Maybe it's not so much what we do, it's, it's what we don't do. It's we haven't prayed enough, we haven't given enough, we haven't helped enough. And again, those aren't sins that bring con- condemnation to us, just that every single day we wake up, we look around and we realize that we can bless somebody. Help us, Lord, to have that kind of vision. To see you in everyone and everything. And we pray these things in your name. And everyone said, amen.